Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week, we are joined by Deb Fallows and Jim Fallows, Gene Jordan and Steve Asher to talk about a wonderful documentary called Our Towns. And remember, we take your questions each episode. So write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. And don't forget, you got to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by our favorite cereal, Magic Spoon. Please check out their links in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors like Magic Spoon. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James Carville, um, we have some great guests on this week. We do most weeks, but these are, you know, really special. But let's talk a little bit about, I watched the uh, highlights, at least, in some of the uh, uh, real time, the Chauvin trial, the Minneapolis cop who um, was accused of murdering George Floyd. And I thought the prosecution put on a powerful case. Uh, The videos tell the story, of course, to keep your knee on a handcuffed man on the ground, on his throat for more than nine minutes is just barbaric. They had strong witnesses. The defense did all it could to paint Floyd as some kind of a, a, a druggie uh, with a bad heart condition, and maybe that's what happened. But uh, I thought their case was much weaker, and their witnesses weren't nearly as impressive that they brought in on Wednesday as the others. But, you know, you never bet on a jury. There's 12 people. You don't have any idea what will happen. And uh, I think there's a great deal of nervousness uh, about this verdict, because if it goes... The right wing and some in the media are praying for an acquittal or a hung trial because it'll cause all kinds of mayhem. Uh, I think the case is pretty darn powerful. Uh, but what do you think? Uh, well, there are two things, I think. Uh, one is that the charge that the jury is going to get for what it takes to find the defense that the police officers have in under Minnesota law it's going to be startling the people when the judge reads the jury. It's not, it's not just they, they have defenses that, that you and I would not have. And so that worries people. However, at the end of the day, the videotape is just powerful. And it's just a powerful piece of evidence. If it wouldn't have been for that video evidence that uh, Darnella, that young woman, 17-year-old, I guess a girl if you're 17. I, I don't know. I'm going to get in trouble with the PC police here. Don't don't but, go there, James. I know. Just whatever. This this female that that good <laughs> that 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 recorded it. But for that, Chauvin would probably walk. I mean, there would be enough confusion about what you saw and and you know everything else. I I I, I don't know, but that that young female. I think at the end of the day, they're probably going to find some responsibility on the part of this police officer. But for her, that would not have happened. And is there any, the people you talk to, uh, is it more probable second degree murder or manslaughter? If they do find I guilty think, I think no one knows. No one knows. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, that, that's the, 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 the people that I talk to who are very knowledgeable, <laughs> you know, Think that the, the Minnesota law is pretty protective, police, but not, but that the video in 
uh, it seems that though the prosecution is uh, highly competent, the judge is experienced. All right, there's going into it. There's a competent prosecutor. There's an experienced jurist that's running the trial. It's the best you can hope for. It is. Yeah, you, know, just, you know, I agree. The larger context, um, a black man was killed nearby Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, where oh. the police officer said that he thought he was shooting him with a I think a the police officer was she. I mean, she, she, I mean, I mean, it's, it's unimaginable that you would think you were shooting someone with a taser and you kill them with a gun. There was that terrible video uh, in Virginia of, uh, of this army officer who was pulled over by a thug and threatened by a thug cop while he was wearing the uniform of his country. I I just, I I have a couple of thoughts. I think that, uh, first of all, I think most cops are good. I really think most cops do a good job. And I think when people like Congresswoman Tlaib of Detroit said, let's get rid of the police force. I mean, that's the dumbest goddamn thing in the world. Who the hell is going to protect uh, uh, people without that? However, said, saying all that, we have, a, we have more than just an anecdotal or a singular problem here and there. There is a systemic problem. And uh, some police forces are dealing with it very well, some not so well. But uh, it tends to be the bigger ones where there's been a tension. And one of the problems, James, we've talked about this before in a place like Minneapolis is the police union. Uh, and uh, you got to figure out a way around that. And I, I tend to be very supportive of unions. Yes. And, and you know, I, but there's nothing, there's nothing that has been more politically destructive, in my opinion, in modern American political history than defund the police. That's All right, yeah. and if, if other be, other other than maybe eliminate the place, yeah. Well, then we that's right. Yeah. Then, then yeah. We, we we not that was just not where people were, and so that we just doubled down on a bet. Just one congresswoman from from Detroit, I guess it is. Uh, it it it, it is, and it's right that people, the the United States has got to, and I'm, I'm sure that Merrick Garland is on the front burner. We got to rethink policing and police training, uh, police screening. All right, some of these things, but some of these things can be caught, can be nipped early. And usually, these people have social posts or something that that that, that, that there needs to be. My opinion is we should pay them more and have more exacting recruiting and training because I think that was where some of this falls down. I don't know how you can be trained being an experienced police officer and not know the difference between a taser and a, and a 38. I mean, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I've had a lot of pistols in my hand. You, you, you kind of know what it is. I, I, I don't, I don't think it just doesn't make any sense that she would intentionally shot him because she was yelling taser, taser, taser. And then after she had, shot the guy, she's like, oh, my God, I shot him. I, now, I, said, I don't know, but somebody needs to review this whole, this entire thing, particularly the training that these people go through. But, Jesus, and that, that, that event in, in Virginia, it, it almost I couldn't look at it. Oh, I'm like, uh, just, oh, man, come on. You're not doing this, are you? And the guy said, I'm, I'm scared to get out of this car. And, and, and the, the, the fat cop says you got good reason to be scared. I mean, what world do they live in? 
Well, he was he was rightfully dismissed as he should have been fired. Uh, but you're right. It's just um, I, what I uh, wish someone would do is do a story on how he got hired or how the police woman in, in Brooklyn, Minnesota, how were they hired? How were they trained? What, what, what can we do short of ending policing, which we're not going to do, nor should we do? What, what can we do to cut down on the number of incidences yet? And, 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 and you got to go back and revisit it. You got to find out what, where's the glitch, where's the flaw. If something is something is fundamentally wrong with the way that we recruit and train a lot of policemen in this country. You know, one of the things this is this applies more relevant for larger cities, to be sure. One of the things I think you get better policing as a general proposition when the police live in the community. Uh, I think when they don't live in the community, they don't have the same stake. There have been a number of studies that have demonstrated that. Now, you can't, in some places, you can't be rigid about that. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it makes a difference. But there are places that are working on things like that. The L.A. Police Department, they've had a couple of problems this year, but they have made major reforms. That used to be the most brutal police department in America. And uh, they certainly have made great progress. So things can be done. But you have to have a, a, a comprehensive. Uh, what was the name of that Pitt law professor that was so good? Oh, he God, he was, God he was good. Ago. Maybe we need to revisit him. Yeah. He's an expert. And he's the foremost expert on, on policing because it's clear that we have to have police. It is clear that we gotta, we got to do better than we're doing. That's, that's, I, that's, I mean, I, that, that's just clear to anybody. I don't care where you are you know, maybe if you're extreme political spectrum, you're not like that. But to me, it's clear. And I, I know I've had some experience with just starting to thing with the New Orleans police fault. Did you have to live in a city where well, you just eliminate a lot of people? Uh, you can't tell a guy making $36,000 a year, you got to move. I mean, that's a oh, pretty oh, you can't. You can't. But I think when you that. start to recruit people, you want to recruit more people who live in the community. I think there's studies. Probably, let me tell you what a big problem is. Let me clue you in on something. Yeah. It's hard to find people to, find, to pass the drug tests. Well, I mean, if that's the case, if that's the case, you got a systemic problem. But there's no question. Yeah, study, a, after study, that's, shows, that's study after any, study shows that if you, if you, recruiter, what's the biggest if issue you have a stake in a community, you care more about it. It's just uh, that's that's just common sense. We got let, let's quickly take up one more subject. The New York Times had a story last Sunday. Uh, both of us, when we started to read it, thought, what the hell are they doing this for? It's about a San Clemente school teacher who uh, was by all accounts, or is by all accounts, very good teacher, fourth grade uh, there, and her husband is a big QAnon uh, follower. She follows her husband. They were January 6th at the Capitol. I don't think they went to the Capitol, but there for the demonstration. And the whole question is, should she be dismissed or not? Yeah, also, there's the mask issue. There is the mask issue, which does make it more right. more, but, more, but there's more no. So well, the question. Let's just explain. The mask issue is she went, there was a, a public event where she went and she chastised people for wearing a mask. Right. So, so here we have someone whose husband is involved in lunatic pursuits that she supports or she shows up at events with her husband and whatever, right? She screamed at people for not mask. The one thing that is a- absent is any complaint about her performance in the workplace. If you read the article, maybe there was, but it says there was 
everybody kind of admitted that she was a good teacher, didn't promote any of this kind of crap in the classroom. Right. Can you, should you fire someone on something that is unrelated to their professional behavior? Obviously, there's something that just the companies or school boards are going to just say is just unacceptable. All right. No one would say if somebody used the N word, say, well, I never used that in the classroom. But that, that's not going to work. <laughs> you got to fire that person. I just think it's, I was intrigued by it because I had to, you know, I talked to you about it. I've talked to 10 other people. And when 10 people say the same thing, I, I'd urge our listeners to read the article. Because it is not a, it's not clear one way or the other what the right choice. And it's right a, it's a it's, superbly it, reported article. And, right. Uh, it's just, a, it's a, it's a difficult choice. I agree with what you said earlier. The one thing I would say, hey, you don't fire. There's nothing in the classroom. She's she's married to a nutbag. You know, so what? Um, and, and you James, know, James Carville's hardly one to yeah. Mary, Mary, and yeah. Judy will say that uh, that can't be right. a disqualifier. However, when she does at a public event, go and create a bit of a ruckus over over people, apparently including kids wearing a mask, that gives me problems. And I'm not sure what you do about it. I'm not, you know, I I still think it's I still still think it's difficult. But um, it's a good story. Everybody ought to read it. Sure. New York Times yeah, and, last yeah. Sunday. Yeah, it, it, your reaction will be, why is the New York Times covering this, a school teacher in San Clemente? And when you get to about graph three, you go, oh, okay. And then but by, by the time you get to graph seven, you, you're totally meshed in the story, which makes a good story. You, did, you didn't see it coming. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, James, Deb and Jim Fallows, among the great journalist of our age, traveled around America for four years in their small plane. They spent time in different towns, and they wrote a great book about the spirit and resilience of many of these communities, which we discussed with them uh, several months ago. This week, working with filmmakers Jeannie uh, Jordan and Steve Asher, it premiered as an HBO documentary, Our Towns. And anybody out there who hasn't watched Our Towns on HBO, you ought to, because it's just a great story. We welcome all four of you. Just to make it easier, let me just say the towns in the film are Redlands in San, San Bernardino, California, Bend, Oregon, Eastport, Maine, and Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Charleston, West Virginia, and Columbus, Mississippi. There, that wasn't that hard. Uh, Deb, let me start with you. Every day in Washington, we wake up and it revolves around warring political camps. And I'm sure there are political discussions in Bend and in, and in, uh, and in Columbus and in Charleston. But what you found, that wasn't much of a focus. It was, it was really on what they're doing to make things work and make things um, uh, succeed. Is that, is that fair? And if so, why? I think that's fair. And maybe part of the answer is what goes on in Washington D.C., where we live, is that that's the business of the town. And it, it kind of overlays everything else that's going on on the local level. You know, you can't walk into the Safeway and start one conversation without ending up on what's happening in immigration or what's happening on the border or, or something that, that turns very quickly political. Um, but in small towns, I'm sure, these, of course, these conversations go on, too. 
but there is a a uh, there is not the same kind of preoccupation with them as there uh, as there is such a preoccupation in in Washington D.C. I mean, we're think you're thinking about more of uh, the potholes in the roads, or that this school isn't working, or that why why um, what can we do about uh, not climate change, but what can we do about the farms that aren't getting enough water, how can we help these farmers because they're getting depressed? You know, it goes to the the compelling everydayness of what we might frame as grand political topics, but takes them down to a level of what you're doing in hometown in your hometown where you can actually have an effect and have some uh, agency. Jeannie, when you join the Fallows for these trips, what 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 struck you about some of these towns? Is there one or two that really stood out, uh, or one or two themes that you think uh, were most dominant? Was most dominant? Well, um, I think one of the things that is, is important to know is that I grew up on a farm near a small town in Iowa, so there was a certain way that I felt like I kind of knew what we might find. Um, however, I I really was surprised by how enthusiastic all these towns were about themselves. Uh, they all thought they were the best kept secret. And I, I guess I didn't, I didn't quite expect that. Um, anyway, that following Jim and Deb's example, we just went into these towns wide open. And the one thing we didn't really want to do is talk politics and, but, and nobody ever brought it up, which was a, a fascinating, wonderful thing at the time we were doing it. Jim, there, we read stories every day uh, about towns that were once prosperous, many of them in your wife's home state, that now are in deep trouble. Almost every one of these six communities and towns that you wrote about had problems, had, had, had economic difficulties, and yet they all have either are back or they're or they're 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 more resilient. I mean, even a place like Charleston that's lost half its population. Uh, describe that. So I, I think almost any place you go in the U.S., you know, this there's you can't find a town or a region that hasn't been through some kind of problem at some point. And the places we we visited, you know, Bend, Oregon, almost nobody knows this now, but 30 or 35 years ago, that was the most depressed place in the country when the uh, timber industry sort of went away all of a sudden in the 1980s. In Charleston, its troubles are, are famous. And Eastport, Maine has been through repeated booms and busts. San Bernardino, California, right near where I grew up, has gone through all sorts of, of hardships. And I think the theme that was in common that we were trying to get across is the story of almost every place in the U.S. and the story of the U.S. as a whole is of struggle. And the question is whether places can find a new footing, whether they can use their resources, their awareness of what they have to offer, their awareness of their place in the country, their awareness of uh, the particular options that are open to them. And I think that's what we wanted to to portray. And it's I, I think it's significant. We had we had towns along different paths of the journey. Now, Charleston, West Virginia has been hard hit in a lot of ways, as you say, but they're finding lots of ways to try to rebuild themselves. Bend, by contrast, is about 20 years along that path. And we're trying to say, if things start going more favorably, what are you dealing with then? You know, if you start having affordable housing issues, et cetera. But so our story is America is a 
pageant of struggle, and here are people in the middle of the struggle. Steve, um, I, I, you know, when you do a, a film, which you know better certainly than than I do, you, you, you have to make it more interesting. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, a book doesn't lend itself to that. This, this no. really does follow the book. I mean, I'm sure there are things you had to do that were different. You interviewed people, you had scenes, but uh, yeah. I, I read the book several years ago and I, I different towns, there were some different communities, but yeah. was that, did that surprise you? Well, uh, you know, actually I would say, you know, I would say that we didn't actually set out to remake the book. We, right. we, we saw what the Fallows did as this kind of ongoing process that it had started with it, Jim's initial blog post that became the America Futures series on the Atlantic website, which became a book. And then when we set out to make the film, it was to kind of leverage the ideas of exploring these towns, looking at the tension between the problems and the solutions but also recasting it with almost all new stories. We needed to film things that were ongoing at the time. And also films, uh, there's a different motor that drives films than drives uh, you know, written prose. We knew that we needed a certain amount of uh, you know, capturing the physical landscape and the human landscape. And also you know, a certain kind of emotional connection between the audience and the stories that had to be really vivid. So. Uh, you know, film, f film and prose are different animals. And so, uh, you know, we really kind of set out to do the filmmakerly things that we do that are different than writing a book. James Cargill. So you got that. I've lived in your, the America that you wrote a film about uh, till 1988. And I lived in, you know, Northwest Washington, a old town, Alexandria from 1988 to 2008, then I went back. And there is a sense, and I've found it since I've moved back home. Is, did y'all pick up a sense that people feel like, the, and I, for lack of a better word, is the media com, East Coast complex doesn't understand their lives? Did you have to deal with this? That uh, you feel kind of looked down on. Is that, and I'm a liberal, okay? I'm not... Anything like that, but I, I get to feeling myself. Uh, uh, James, yes, I'll, I'll start out. And I have in the early part of the film, I have <laughs> what my sons tease me about a little bit, but it's actually true. My own sort of log cabin story of growing up in a part of California that coastal California looks down on. You know, it's the right. inland California. It's where people came during the Great Depression, and it's where people came from Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. That's not a stylish part of California. And I'll, I'll just tell briefly, when I was in high school, Joan Didion wrote one of her first most famous magazine articles about my hometown. And essentially, it was about, can you imagine these hicks? You know, these people, this is sort of the uh, the, the kind of the California we, we don't talk about. And so, I think one very, very important theme that goes through the, the entire movie is how deep and complex and sophisticated people around the country are when you ask them about their lives. We have we have wonderful, eloquent uh, statements from Larry Gross, who's become put a very successful music host in Charleston, West Virginia, and also Chris Gardner, who's a jack of all trades in Eastport, Maine, talking about how people think when you hear 
the word West Virginia, the name West Virginia, or you hear uh, rural Maine, or you hear Mississippi, you have a whole set of assumptions. And they are here to tell you there is so much more going on there. And I think that's the, the probably the most important thing about the movie, apart from its beauty. And as Al was <laughs> was being too polite to say, it's so much more interesting than the book. It's just that the the, <laughs> the kind of depth and sophistication, and not just three dimensionality, but ten dimensionality of people around the country that isn't captured by guy in a diner stories that you usually get after an election. I, 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 and the fact of the matter is, people in cities can be as parochial as people out in the country. And a lot of the people out in the country were more sophisticated than a lot of city people we know. So, I mean, I think it's also plays into the whole question of like, a lot of people still have trouble with the idea that we didn't address partisan politics more. And that's another way of kind of overlaying a, you know, the cliches of a media elite looking at small towns and like, well, who did you vote for? Because that's really all we're interested in about you is how do you vote? And that's why we didn't ask that question and why the fellows started by not asking that question. Yeah. That's... Also, I, I just want to say to, to James sure. what, what you said about, about people looking down. Because I grew up where I grew up in Iowa, I know for a fact that people have a certain attitude about farmers. Uh, my, my family were farmers. And we actually made a film. Uh, basically, part of me feels like I just made it. I wanted to just like hit that cliche out of the park. And, and when people would watch the film, they would say, your family is so smart, which was just like a perfect meat, you know, to just like go, <laughs> go after them sort of, because truthfully, there is a, a yeah. national attitude. Yeah, that's, they, yeah. they were smart and they didn't live anywhere near water. And how is that possible? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, if, if, if you did a thing, I guess it was Columbus, but it was that Starkville area. And... I'm just telling you, the mentality of people in Washington is if you go to Mississippi State, it, it's too bad you didn't go to MIT. They don't give a shit that they're not at MIT. They're quite happy being at Mississippi State and quite proud of what they're doing. And I don't think we acknowledge that kind of stuff enough. I think we – I think what the glory of the film in the book is is that these people don't aspire to be you. They're very content in making their lives as well as they can where they are. You know, that, that's, that's really interesting. And it also is something that we heard from the young people, you know, the acclaimed young people in, in all these towns that we visited. These really smart high school kids who wanted to get away to learn stuff, but so frequently came into their conversation. The next part was because I'm going to bring that back here and I want, to, I want to open this kind of business or do this kind of research at East Mississippi State. Um, or I, I want to, the point was, I want to come home. I want to go away for a while, but my intention is to come back here. So it's not just, you know, I am happy within the limits of where I live. It's I am happy to be part of what lifts up this place when I grow up, which is, is a standard. That, that's, that's also been a really interesting thing about the pandemic is now you can live pretty much anywhere and do all sorts of work that's completely elsewhere. 
And it suddenly reinfuses the idea that you could live where you want to live and still not be limited in your job opportunities to that area. So that's like the pandemic has kind of inverted a lot of the messaging of the film. Yeah, I don't turn it back over now. It just cause it just touches me in, in, in many ways. But the real way it touched me when I moved back to Louisiana in 2008, people said, well, what's he up to? This is some kind of move. He's going to run for governor. He said, I just wanted to go home. All right? I, just, I like the idea that anybody walks out of Washington, that not in handcuffs, a pine box, can't be digested. What, what are you up to, James? What's your agenda? I want to go. I want to go home. <laughs> I'm fine. I live in a eight thousand square foot house. I got like, you know, twenty Zaga twenty five plus restaurants within a half a mile of me. What's wrong with my life? And I, I, I just had to experience that. And uh, on, on a level, it was just it was kind of funny the way that you guys understand. I've come to understand or understood the rest of the country. Me having lived this, I, I, I so identify with what you did. <laughs> but anyway, and, and I'll turn I, it back over to Al. So, so can I just uh, horn in here but before Al? So, so what you say, James, resonates so powerfully with, with, with us on a general point and a specific one. The general point is we always talk about America being homogenized and rootless and all the same, et cetera. But the sense of where people are from is really strong. We saw so many cases of people who, like you, they were from someplace and they wanted to go back and they were thinking about ways to be back in the Pacific Northwest or in Texas or in Virginia or Florida or or you name it. The other is that my own hometown in Redlands, California, where I always think I am from, it's been transformed by having a multi-billion dollar tech firm that is located there and not Cambridge, Mass and not in Seattle because the people who founded it, who were childhood friends of mine, that's where they're from. And they wanted to build that firm there and attract people and transform their towns. So it's, we understand what you're talking about. And he, and he said, uh, you, you interviewed him and he said, he said, the quality of life is better here. The people can afford to live here better. That, that, that's important. There, there, there's some wonderful, really quite moving stories. But you also capture that there are problems there as everywhere. The opioid problem is pervasive and, and not just Charleston, but all over. Uh, and there's there's these these towns seem they're they're facing up to it by and large. They're 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 addressing this sometimes in some quite innovative ways. Anybody, Jeannie, uh, Deb, yeah. anybody well, the, the problems, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, this film, is it optimistic or is it Pollyannish? You know, we went into it feeling like the problems are as important as the solutions. And some of these problems are in homelessness, opioids are intractable. They're chipping away at them. They're not solving them. You're not going to solve racism. Uh, but it, it was really interesting to see how they're throwing themselves at those problems. And uh, you know, it, it's that struggle, it's that tension that makes the the the, the whole story interesting. Yeah, I, I um, there were so many people that I just found fascinating uh, in the film, and a lot of them could have been from another town. Uh, two who could not have been from any other town were Edward French and his wife, Laura Whalen. I mean, they are so down East Maine. They are so... But they run a wonderful little newspaper up there, Jim. I think it's twice a month, the Quaddy Times. And uh, you, you had a, just, uh, I thought, a great interview. 
that every journalist or every, excuse me, every publisher in America should watch. It was wonderful to meet the uh, the French brothers and, and their, their spouses, uh, Hugh and Edward French. And Edward and Laura Whelan uh, run the Quaddy Tides, which their mother founded back in the 1960s. And its sort of guiding spirit is you build circulation by offering more rather than less. And they have a network in this little tiny town of sort of 20 volunteer and part-time correspondents all around down East Maine and in that part of Canada. And the paper is just fat. It's a fat print paper uh, twice a month. And, that, that, you know, he was saying that, that the way in which you build, number one, he was saying, they both were saying that uh, communities need a news source, ideally a paper, to hold them together. The other is that papers need to expand rather than contract to be able to have a future. You know, we saw... I, I, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go yeah, ahead, Deb. I was going to uh, pile on to a, a similar kind... Well, another journalism story that wasn't in the movie and wasn't in the book, but we heard about this year in South Dakota where um, one of the local papers was, was, you know, going belly up. They couldn't make it anymore. And then uh, the reason was... Um, that the building in which they were housed was being sold by the owner. He owned the building and he owned the newspaper. He was going to just shut down the newspaper and sell the building. Well, people in three of the neighboring towns got together and decided to buy the building. And the owner said, okay, well, I'll just throw in the newspaper as well. So they started, they restarted a local newspaper with all volunteer work in this building. And, and now it's become this kind of thriving regional paper. But it's, you know, it, it, it takes a lot. It, on one hand, it's easy to kill a paper. On the other hand, if people want that, it's, it's, not, it's hard to kill the paper. Boy, that's great. You know, we, we hear every day we read about immigration in this country. I think the, the stereotype is it's down at the border. It's a problem. It's the Southwest, maybe Florida. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, uh, could it exist without immigrants today? Yeah, boy, sure. Not the same way. That is for sure. Um, so, Steve and Jeannie, why don't you tell if, us about if, that? Because that was so such a part of the well, town. Absolutely. But the thing that amazed me is that when I was growing up, my dad took hogs to Sioux Falls to sell them. And at that point in time, Sioux Falls was not a place that immigrants came to. Um, the, the thing that changed out was the Vietnam War. And it, it really, all over the Midwest, um, people took took in refugees from Vietnam, and then it's just continued. But Sioux Falls kind of wrote the book. The Lutheran Church in in, in South Dakota sort of got a hold of this issue, and they have a, a, it's like almost an industry of helping people come into the country, get used to what needs to happen here, taking them to doctor's appointments, helping them find places to live, helping them get over the fact that they've moved to a place that it's going to snow a lot. If you're from Eritrea, you do not, you're not used to snow, but they, they help people in a way that I, I think it was just such a find, at least for me, yeah. it was a big surprise. And, and then during COVID, you know, the meatpacking plants were deemed essential industries. A lot of immigrant, mostly immigrants work there. American, you know, native-born Americans don't want to work in the packing plants. There was no PPE in the beginning. It was a huge COVID hotspot. They, because meat was essential, they had to go to work. 
So it really, you know, the whole country was kind of pivoting on immigrant and refugee labor uh, that really wasn't being treated very well. I love it was, I think his name was Mohammed Ahmed, who said, I'm a forfer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a refugee, Four I'm elements. a black, Four I'm a Muslim, elements. and I'm from yeah. Somalia. James. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I want to get each one of you, because you're thoughtful people, you come from different backgrounds, and this has been gnawing at me for a while. I think democratic messaging comes out of the faculty lounge of the linguistics department at Brown. Okay? I, I, did you, have you ever met anybody that lived in a community of color? Have you ever met a Latinx person out there? They don't exist. Yeah. Right? They live in yeah. neighborhoods. Yeah. Right? And who comes up with this? And then it gets, and you say, well, well, James, it, it, it's mouthed on, on cable TV. It's everywhere that you go in the culture. People are saying we've got to unite communities of color and the Latinx. But this, and you talk to people, I don't know what shit you're talking about. <laughs> okay, first of and all. <laughs> I just I just get my reaction because this is just a thing that I'm born yeah. to linguistics department. So, so, yeah. so, okay, okay no, 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 <laughs> you're maligning the wrong people here. Okay. So Deb is a linguistics. So Deb is linguistics PhD, but from the University of Texas. Yeah. The People's yeah. Republic of Austria. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, the discipline has, uh, you know, decades ago it morphed. It used to be that that language was prescriptive. There was a way to say it, and that's how you could say it. And if you said it with the the wrong ending, that was wrong. But linguists are actually the first ones now who say, who are listening to what people say. And if it, if it changes, like nobody says, uh, I'm going to uh, go lie down now. Everybody's going to go lay down now, which is, of course, wrong. But <laughs> linguists don't say that's wrong anymore. They say language is changing. We have to accept that, that language changes and that's how it works. So point one, it's not the linguists. The linguists are just kind of following along what's happening. Okay, let's say the sociology at. department. Okay. okay, the sociology department. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, that's a different story. And I, I'm gonna blame I'm gonna blame the media on this one uh, more than the linguists because somebody with um, who's a quote influencer will come in and start talking in in a gravelly voice or drop things at the end of the sentence. And then since they're influential, other people pick it up and it goes like wildfire because it has a national audience. It used to kind of, you know, dribble and drab around the country in a slower way, but now you've got everybody listening to the same influential people. And, and if there's something behind it, or if you feel like you're not being old term politically correct, then you're going to have to say that too, eventually. Otherwise, you'll get some new label. Um, so it, it, it's easy for things to be national now, like people of color. And um, if you don't like it, you gotta find another color. way of, uh, around it. Yeah. St Stephen okay. G, you didn't go to Brown, I hope, did you? <laughs> no, no. Okay. University of Iowa. Yeah. This is a yeah, ground-free environment yeah. here, I think. <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have nieces and nephews who went there. And so, yeah. so in addition to defending linguists in general, my own beloved wife as a linguistics person, um, I, I, James, I, I agree with you that, that, you know, anything that smacks of talking down to people is poison. 
And so that there is because, you know, people are smart. And, and I, so I think there'll be voices coming out of the whole breadth of America that don't have any uh, any talking down implication to them. Right. I, I, I think it, the English is a, is a good language. <laughs> I was watching the, the Hemingway thing at Ken Burns. I never really, I knew he was and, you know, that kind of stuff. God, I mean, simplicity in sentences was, you know, in Gertrude's side, used to just like beat the crap out of him, you know, but there, there's <laughs> something in the utility of communications that is worth Did you emulating. See, did me. you Go. see when he was at the, he, when he was at the Kansas City Star? Yes. Did you see the little credo of how you were supposed to write? Right. The, style yeah. the style sheet? Yes. It was the way he wrote for the rest of his life. No it was adjectives. like, wow, that's where he learned <laughs> Right. No like one, no, no one would ever confuse me with Ernest Hemingway, but I was taught in the beginning, right. you know, uh, short sentences and no more than two sentences to a paragraph. Transition, move quickly. And uh, I was teaching a course at the University of Pennsylvania about how to write an op-ed. And uh, some students said to me, well, I read a Henry Kissinger op-ed last weekend, and it had 10 sentences in, in one paragraph. And I said, what did it say? She said, I don't have any idea what it said. <laughs> anyway, uh, you, you all have done a, a, just a masterful oh, job. Uh, it's by the just... way, Deb, my daughter is starting the MFA program in creative writing at LSU, and her project is going to be reporting on the leprosy colony that used to exist in Carville, Louisiana. And she's going and doing all the original research and has got the museum curator wow. And she's very oh, precise about language. She's very interesting. Interested yeah. in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, her. congratulations to all four of you. This collaboration really worked. Uh, and anybody, sure anybody who has not seen Our Towns HBO, you got to watch it and maybe rewatch. I watched it three times. You know, <laughs> sooner or later, Deb, I'll get it. Uh, but anyway, no, I really I appreciate your time, and it's just a you you, you did a magnificent job. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, James, our question and answers. Uh, we provide the answers, we hope, because they, they provide darn good questions. We've got great, great listeners out there. Melanie in Bellingham, Washington. She says, I really want to make a difference in the 2022 midterm elections. I'm so worried the Republicans are going to take back the House without much effort. Where can small donors go? This kind of question has been asked before, but they keep asking it. They're, you know, they want to make a difference. They want to stay energized. What do you tell them? Well, I, I, I would probably, if I was a small donor, I would send the money to the Democratic Campaign Congressional Committee, the DCCC. Why do I say that? Because they supplement the campaigns. They have better targeting than you have. They're better equipped, although they, they screwed up in 2020. I, I, I would tell any, any, any donor that the, the DCCC is probably, or if you really want to do the research and you want to go to someone who's in a vulnerable swing district and send a check directly to them. If, if you can take 10 minutes and, and, and figure it out. But but be judicious with your with your contributions. I mean, when I think of all of the money that was spent sent to Amy McGrath in Kentucky, which everyone knew she didn't have a chance, it was thirty million dollars. 
I mean, donors have got to be smarter and more targeted about where they spend their money. Now, what turned out to be justifiable, huge expenditure was the Georgia. That that was a really good use of a lot of money. And so I would, I would like, if, if I didn't want to do my homework, I'd send my check to the DCCC. If I wanted to spend 15 minutes and it's not very difficult, you know, to find a, a Democrat who won by less than one and a half percent or two percent in 2020, or a district where a Republican won by a percent and a half or two and find a good Democratic opponent. That's my advice. Yeah, and you know a lot more about this than I do, but if you're looking uh, for the for the Senate races uh, out there, uh, Melanie, I mean, you know, it's clear. It's Wisconsin, it's Pennsylvania, it's North Carolina, it's Georgia, and then if Republicans make an effort, a um, serious effort, in either like in Nevada or New Hampshire. So that's New easy. New Hampshire. Yeah, there's there's New no... Uh, well, that depends on whether the governor runs, right. I think. He, right. he'd be right. It'd be tough. close anyway, but it right. has to be anyway. The next, we have Ismail and Irving, Texas, who said he's really worried that people are being tricked into thinking things are really bad by Republicans, similar to how many people voted against Obama, uh, were against Obamacare. So they voted for Trump and then they found out that health care was their ACA all along. Uh, should the Democrats be taking more credit? I think Obama made a, his administration made a big mistake on both their stimulus and the Affordable Health Care Act. They got so involved in the inside game, and they did very well. They passed them. They were incredibly important pieces of legislation. They forgot about the outside game. That stimulus saved us from a worldwide depression, conceivably, and yet it was unpopular all the way through the next midterm elections. I think the Biden people are doing a bit of a better job. They're talking about what they're doing. They have a message that's more consistent. They're not just worried about an inside game. That is really critical. Oh, if I think of Obama... In, in first of all, as a politician, let's start with the obvious. He is the first person since, since Eisenhower to get 50% twice, I think. Right. He never liked politics. I mean, he, he liked governing. He, he was, that's not a, I mean, it's not a value statement. It's just he didn't, he, I don't know if he thought it was unseemly. And, and Biden he just every fiber of him is political, and it, it, there I don't think policy distinctions between the two are particularly great, but the stylistic differences are are are, 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 are pretty pretty obvious. And you're right, and, and he didn't. But of course, he had a disastrous 2010. Clinton had a disastrous '94. To be fair, he had a disastrous 2014. He had a very successful eight and twelve. So I. He's a very, there's a lot more we're going to learn about Obama as historians keep unearthing stuff. And I think a lot of it is going to, I think it's going to be interesting and expelling. But he, he didn't, he, he'd rather be at a, in a meeting, you know, about policy. Than well, we can, we can talk about policies. Obama. We, we, we have to blame people that we're very fond of too, like Rahm and David Axelrod. They didn't yes. do a good job in, uh, in oh. selling that stimulus or the, or the ACA. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do agree that Biden is doing a better job. Uh, James, this is, again, a recurring question, but it still comes in. And I'm going to I'm going to let this person get a pass because all they say is it's T in North Alabama. T, next time, tell us where in North Alabama and what T stands <laughs> for. Maybe it's just T. He wants to know how Democrats can win more elections in the South. 
all the state legislatures, governors, all that congressional delegations are full of Republicans. The Southern Democrats need a more conservative approach. Well, T, I don't know what county you're from, but I do know this. Trump carried whatever county you're from. If it's That's in North Alabama, sure. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think we can. It's hard to overestimate the impact of these Georgia Senate races. All right. And, and it happened. And, of course, Georgia is different. Alabama is different. Louisiana, you have a much higher percentage of, of, of college-educated people in Georgia than you do in Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee. All right. They're, they're going to be late coming to the, to the party. Uh, but Virginia is now a blue state. I, I think North Carolina is much further along as a disappointing uh, 2020 in North Carolina. But the, the underlying shit is still there in North Carolina. All right. The, the, I, the, the place that we just underperform horribly, honestly, is Florida. Uh, it's honestly Florida. 64% in 2018, I never tire pointing this out, voted to give f- convicted felons who did their time the right to vote. In 2020, 60% voted for a $15 minimum wage. And we lose. And we say that Florida is stupid, all right? Maybe there's something we're doing wrong. Because if you, you're going to put a, you're going to put me in an environment where 64% want people to have the right to vote, that convicted felons, or you want a $15 minimum wage, that's an election you should be able to win. That, that really is. It doesn't inherently, like, tells you that, 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 that that's not, not a hostile electorate that you're dealing with. There's something wrong with the campaigns that we run. And a lot of it is this, what, what people, unfortunately, it's what, what people hear, not what, what Biden says, but to hear this defund the police, to hear this abolish the police, to hear this communities of color stuff, and they, they turned off by it. We got to stop it. Uh, one key is to get good candidates, uh, even in a tough environment. In Louisiana, you did that with John Bell Edwards James. Uh, Virginia, uh, part of the reason Virginia changed is demographic, obviously, the Washington suburbs. But when you had Mark Warner, Tim Kaine, Terry McAuliffe, they really produced good candidates. Roy Cooper in North Carolina. So, uh, you know, there's there's there. The South isn't solid anymore. It's a challenge, but it's not it's not solid. I I think the Atlantic South is a much more fertile ground than the Gulf South, the interior South. For sure. Francis in Little Rock says, I don't understand why Democrats are reluctant to modify the filibuster before some Democratic senator unexpectedly dies and converts the 50-50 tiebreaker into a Republican majority. Well, first of all, Francis, the filibuster is a huge fight, and uh, I, I think there are going to be some mild modifications. Joe Manchin will go along with, but it's going to be a heck of a struggle. I'm not aware of every state law, but I think in almost every state that's held by a Democrat, uh, the governor gets to appoint the successor. So even in the un- and hopefully the unlikely event that some Democrat uh, passes from the scene, I don't. I, I, it may cause a temporary blip, but not not much of a problem. Yeah, I. You know, I'm nervous about the 2022 thing, as everybody is, and you know, we'll say it's the most consequential off-term election we've had in American modern American history, if not 
us who, if not now, win. We stand on the precipice. But it is a pretty big election. <laughs> it is. James, I'm more worried about the House and the Senate. Well, look, it, it, what are you, these are the, the headwinds you got. You got to, according to which quant you listen to, you, you need to win the popular vote somewhere between 4 and 7%. Yep. Okay? And the redistricting is going right in you. The headwinds right. are just are, are, are daunting. All right. And you also have just the, the natural historical thing of the in party loses does generally does terribly in the first go round. The only thing that gives me hope is I hope Goldman Sachs is right because there's eight percent growth. Probably gonna be okay. There right, could well, be. I don't know if we there could be percent growth. Three percent unemployment in November of 2022 is a distinct possibility. And I think you had to be encouraged if you watched Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who is not really a radical leftist, uh, last Sunday on uh, on 60 Minutes. So I think the economy is going to work well. And and I think one of the things Democrats have to do is they have to make sure they're not associated with people like Congressman Tlaib in, in uh, Michigan. They make sure that the Republicans are associated with the Marjorie Greens. Uh, yeah. They haven't done it's that a great, very well. It's a great unanswered question. And I, if anybody wants to give us some answers and letters, we'll be glad to. Why do why did we pay a price for to lead, and they pay no price for right. or, or yeah. Bob it or whatever? I, I, right. I, I don't know. James, uh, Bill in Pittsburgh says, do you see Joe Manchin switching to the Republican Party before the next election? I, I kind of don't. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if he survived in a state that long, he's probably, I, I, I think he's actually a Democrat. He may not be the squad's idea what it should be, but I, I think at his core, he made a decision. So, I, mean, I know a lot of Southern Democrats because I am one. It, it, basically, they're Democrats. They're just, they're, or, or more appropriately, he's not a Republican. Uh, if, of course, the, the Democrat has not carried a county in West Virginia since 2008. And the dumbest people or the people that want to go down there and campaign against him or something. Can somebody just tell these people to shut up and stand down? That that guy, it, it, the difference between having him or, or, or that congressman, that state legislator that showed up in the Capitol building is all the difference in the world. And you got to give this guy some space. He's got, he's, he, he needs maneuver room. But I hope he, I don't think that he will. And it's, it's an amazing politician. He was governor. He did a lot of really progressive, uh, forward-looking things. And he's got to get there in his own time. But the, 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 I think this, some of this anti-Joe Manchin stuff is, like, horribly counterproductive. You're not going to hear it that. It probably from, helps him. You know what? He probably doesn't care because yeah, probably what he, what he needs you, at home. You aren't going to hear from Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer. Uh, no. I'll tell you that. I agree. And as Corey's a Democrat, I'd be shocked if he switched. Matthew, in Riverside, California, which is right next to James Fallow's hometown of right. Redlands, uh, wants to know that President Biden is announcing a new deadline of uh, September 11th to pull all troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, is that a mistake? Is he going to be hurt? Let me tell you something. It's a real problem. It's it's going to cause all kinds of problems. It really is, in many ways, a very bad decision. There may be only one worse decision, and that is to stay. There is no good outcome here. We've been there for 20 years. The idea that if we stayed for another one year or two years or three years, the situation is going to change, 
I fear is just unrealistic. And I hate the fact that women are going to suffer. The Taliban is going to take over even more places. Uh, I hope that we can prevent it from being a, a new sanctuary for terrorists. But there are going to be bad consequences. But uh, 20 years uh, is long enough. Well, Ashraf Ghani, who is the president of Afghanistan, I actually stayed at his house in Kabul. Uh, he was like an academic at Berkeley. He's a very gentle guy, but he's losing. I'm, I'm afraid that Ashraf, you know, his power is diminishing. You know, Taliban is coming on. I, I don't know. You know, I, I agree. It's it's a horrible decision, and the alternative is probably more horrible. But uh, people are cooperating with the U.S. They're going to get their they're going to be in a lot of trouble. I mean, we're we're, we're in, embedded there in grain now. We paid people off. We got we had you know, and when we leave, they're not going to be they're not going to fare. I'm afraid they're not going to fare well. I I I I don't have a better answer. No. Is I, the truth. I, I think there are two bad options. Two and awful options. The other bad option is when the, the Russians invade the eastern Ukraine. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. They're just going to do it. And just what looks like when they annex Crimea, just they, they're going to do it. I, what scares the hell out of me is this thing in Taiwan. Oh God. Well, uh, the president sent uh, uh, Chris Dodd and uh, uh, Rich Armitage. Over there, that is that is literally a, a, a high level mission because you're right. That is incredibly incredibly dangerous. And uh, I we have a kid who lived with us for a while and has become almost like a daughter who's Chinese. And uh, we were over there many years ago, and she's not a you know her family's not a member of the party, and she's you know wasn't dismissive, but she wasn't you know a great party booster. And one night at dinner, we suddenly mentioned Taiwan and her eyes flashed and she said, it's not Taiwan, it's China. That's a widespread feeling throughout that day. Uh, mm -hmm. Biden surprise. needs to send three people over there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and, and you know, maybe a couple warships wouldn't hurt either. I don't know. But, uh, you, you know, because that is, that is dangerous. Uh, we got one more, uh, James. This is from Rob in Rosemont, Pennsylvania. I know Rosemont. Roosevelt had fireside chats. Why doesn't Biden have a weekly tour of America's infrastructure? And for good optics, he could start in West Virginia, move to Alabama, and then Texas. <laughs> you know, I don't know <laughs> if that's such a, I, I guess a pandemic probably slows this down a little bit, but I'm not sure that's a bad idea. <laughs> you no, know, I mean, you, 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 you're selling something, you're pushing it, you know. It, it, Every place that he goes, he should, find, which is the easiest thing in the world, is find some shitty piece of infrastructure. So if he's traveling to, to Scranton for whatever reason, he could accentuate that. Or he's traveling anywhere in the, in the country, he could do that. That's, not a, that's a good idea. It you is. should listen to this guy. Well, that's because he's from Rosemont, Pennsylvania, which used to be the heart of Eisenhower country that now is voting 60%. For uh, for Joe Biden. That's what county is Rosemount? It's, a, it's Montgomery, I believe. It's, it's the Philadelphia Main Line. It's become a lot a lot more uh, a lot more diverse. And let me just make one point. I about thought this. it was in Delaware, but I was wrong. Okay. Well, right. yeah, you know, it could be. I mean, could, yeah. you know, this the, the, the lines get blurred between right. Delaware, Montgomery, right. and Chester. <laughs> they all dress well, though. Uh, but the uh, the the one point I want to make, Biden from the beginning has called this an infrastructure jobs bill. And Republicans are saying only 24% or seven, whatever percent are infrastructure. So let's take everything else out. Okay, fine. I just want someone to ask them. Every time they say that, every time, the biggest non-roads, bridges, airport element in that bill is $400 billion to provide 
for help for in-home care for the elderly and people with disabilities. It's a national crisis. The Republicans say, that's not a crisis. We don't need that money. Uh, it's easy to say, let's take out all the non-infrastructure stuff, but talk about that. So my sister's semi-retired, RN. She worked for a home health toward the end of her career. She worked for a home health and she would make these visits for like company to provide that. And if somebody, you know, of course, when you're elderly in home health, you, you generally have diabetes, you have high blood pressure, you have any number of medications, life-saving medications that you own. If you knock the medication over, you're done. You can't get, you can't afford a refill. So if you knock your diabetes, your insulin over, you knock your whatever high blood pressure medication you own, you, you're done. And this is a terrible problem. This is a very good thing that they're doing. You know, I'm an elderly person myself. Uh, obviously, I, I think of people that have no means. And the, the strain that this is on families is, is enormous. And the fact that, that they want to spend money to help, and it's not just helping the, the el, ill elderly people, it's helping their children, it's helping their grandchildren, it's giving, it, 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 it is part of the infrastructure. And, and it, it permeates through generations. Absolutely. I, that, I don't want to hear another Republican say, let's take all the non-infrastructure out and not be asked, do you want to take out this help for people, for in-home care for seniors and people with, with, with disabilities? It's a, it's, a, it's, a crucial, it's a crucial issue. Okay, keep those letters and emails and cards coming. Uh, you all just ask great questions and you, you, know, you make us think even if we equivocate on Afghanistan because there is no good answer. trying to think in this show as I think back on it. I don't think we talked about Trump more than five seconds. Uh, I am so ecstatic that I don't have to listen to him or watch him most days. But then I read something and I just get riled up again. It's only temporary and it goes away. But this week down at Mar-a-Lago, Rick Scott, uh, the (laughs) senator from Florida, presented presented Donald Trump with the National Senate Campaign Committee Award. It is it is called the um, I'm, I'm looking for the it's 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 the champion for freedom award. Now, if you haven't heard of that, James, you haven't heard of it. There's a reason you haven't heard of it, because it didn't exist. So Rick Scott made it up and he presented this little small trophy and he gave it to Donald Trump's little small hands for a great photo opportunity because he said Rick Scott said Trump saved us from democratic socialism. Now, Rick Scott knows something about democratic socialism because when he was CEO of a healthcare company, they ripped off Medicare and had to pay a $1.7 billion fine. So Rick Scott is well aware uh, of how you can get rich off of socialism. Well, I, I guess the, the, the really funny thing about the award, it came few days after he called Mitch McConnell a dumb son of a bitch. So the Republican 
senatorial campaign committee was so moved by Trump they presented him a award after he <laughs> called Alita a dumb son of a bitch. I mean, it, it's almost, and, and of course, one of the criteria that, is that he, he was hardworking. The guy didn't go into office after that. He was president, but okay, that's fine. <laughs> was kind of, I, I guess my rage is, is this whole vaccine hesitancy thing. I mean, these are not like good vaccines. They're awesome. I mean, they were put in, and you have to say Trump can take some credit for the Moderna vaccine. Right? You just, that's right. Whatever, whatever Congress is going to pass it or whatever. But there's nothing to be hesitant about. I mean, the, the, the safety of these things is, is breathtaking. Now, Johnson Johnson have had 8 million, 7 million doses, and they've had six people get sick. One in a million. Try this. Pick a number between one and a million. If you didn't pick 254,942, you don't win. All right? That, that's literally how safe these things are. And, you know, we're, what's going to happen to, to, we're talking about with Jim and out in Red America and places where I live, one of the disadvantages, we're not going to get to herd immunity if you have that kind of vaccine hesitancy. And it, it's literally a, a chance to beat back, you know, one of the great public health crises of, of, of our lifetime. And I'm now getting scared. We, we have the tools to do it, and we're going to choose not to do it. And it's, it's terrible. I don't know. What, I have no idea what to say. You're not supposed to scream at people. You're supposed to agree with people. You don't try to argue with them. Okay, but maybe there's just a certain percent of this country, and obviously know some people, they're not like the, the, they have the, the intellectual skills to arrive at a sane decision. They just choose to be crazy. And I don't know what you do to somebody. I don't know how you help someone that just says, I just, I just choose to be nuts. Because there's no valid reason why anyone wouldn't knock a door down to get one of these vaccines, none. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something. I don't like the big hand of government forcing people to do things, but I have no problem with any private enterprise or any government agency that says, hey, if you want to come work here, if you want to be in the workplace, you have to be vaccinated. You can work from home. We can't fire you. But because you are you are really jeopardizing other people. And I have no problem with a pass with a vaccine passport. We have driver's license. We have, uh, you know, passports. Uh, so I, uh, I, we're close. We're close to getting back to somewhere, you know, where we used to be. Don't screw it up now. Yeah, I, I scare when I look at these numbers, and you know, I, I know some people say you need eighty percent to get herd immunity. Some people say eighty-five. Some people say seventy-six. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know, but when you look at the, the number of hesitant people, it may prevent you from getting to the numbers that you need to get to, and it's, it's a real tragedy to lose lives that are just unnecessary you don't yeah. it doesn't have to be this way right i i couldn't agree more hey thanks for listening to politics war room with james carville and i'm al hunt don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at politicon following this episode we really would appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsor, Magic Spoon. 
We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show, hopefully with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another program as we continue our War Room planning.